Welcome to the Runner's World Show, where each week we entertain you, inspire you, and inform you about all things running. I'm David Willey, Editor-in-Chief of Runner's World. And this week, I finally do it. Enter my first Spartan race. Then in the kick, what it takes to get 5,000 Santa Clauses to run five miles. And on-the-go fueling for winter workouts. But first, my conversation with Joe DeSena, the founder and CEO of the Spartan Race. Joe is also the author of Spartan Up, a take-no-prisoner's guide to overcoming obstacles and achieving peak performance in life, and host of his own podcast called Spartan Up. If you know anything about Joe DeSena, you know he is no joke. He is a super intense athlete who absolutely practices what he preaches, which is basically this. We are all capable of going further, faster, and harder than we realize. It's the kind of stuff that makes you want to measure up. And when I met Joe earlier this fall in New York City, that was the backdrop for our interview. Would I measure up? I was both excited and also a little bit anxious for reasons that will soon become clear. Stick around and thanks for listening. I met Joe in the lobby of the Runner's World offices in Manhattan. Hey, Joe. I'm David Willey. Hey, Dave. Hi, Clay. Good to meet you. Hi. He had on shorts and a backpack. And in one hand, he was carrying a large kettlebell, which obviously I asked him about. Well, you know, normally I was carrying around an 85-pound uh, sandbag, but they took it from me in the airport. So um, I went with this. Turns out Joe avoids cabs and public transport, which is the way lots of people get around midtown Manhattan. He walks whenever he can, and he usually carries something heavy with him. Today it was the kettlebell. Can I hold it for a sec? Yeah. Oh, man. What did you say, 44? 44 pounds. 44 pounds. All right, I'll give this back to you now. (laughs) Yeah, it's not exactly a runner's tool. (laughs) I handed the weight back to him, and we headed upstairs to the offices for our interview. When we got there, Joe asked if we could stand because, well, Joe doesn't like to sit. Sitting is the new smoking. So that's how we started the interview. Face-to-face, standing. So I'm going to confess, I was actually nervous to meet you. Because, you know, I'm, I'm an athlete, I'm a runner, I'm fairly high-achieving personality, I've been called type A by some people, but, you know, I had this combination of meeting you and, and wanting you to think highly of me, while also realizing that you probably would not. No, you seem very nice. I, mean, well, I, I like you. But I, that's, that's okay. But I'm curious. Do you, are you aware that you have that you have that effect on some people of you know, expectations? You know, um, this summer I, it became um, um, prevalent that that was. The, I didn't know this was the case, but um, we had a cleaner come in and clean the house during the summer because we were leaving and heading to Japan, and uh, the cleaner said something about sc- the word "scary" to my wife and. I dug a little deeper, and my wife said, no, she thinks you're very scary. I was like, what the f*** 
is that? Like, <laughs> you gotta bleep that out, but like, why? So now I get it. Yeah, there's a little scariness thing going on or something. Well, I don't know. I think it's like the legend of Joe DeSena and Good the point. legend of Spartan, because yeah, you also right. seem like a really nice guy. I'm, yeah, I'm nice. There's, there's nothing scary here. <laughs> I'm drinking hot water. I don't understand. Although I will also point out that you walked in the door of our building down in the lobby carrying uh, a kettlebell that weighed 44 pounds. You but, know, um, in the ancient world in Sparta, uh, Lysurgis came up with this whole concept and his thing was he didn't want people attached to money so he made the money very very heavy right because if it was a burden you didn't want to carry it, you don't want to earn it you just wanted to deal with the things they wanted you to focus on and so um, that's my burden there that 44 pound kettlebell and when did you start carrying that around so that was about 10 days ago I switched from a sandbag to a kettlebell why the switch from the sandbag to the kettlebell I had a problem I, oh, I was, I was heading to Japan with my sandbag, and um, I went through the metal detector, and in order for it to be, an, it was an 85-pound sandbag, it can't be filled with sand because you can't, I didn't want that big of a sandbag to carry, so I filled it with shot, so it was all metal beads like, like a, in a shotgun, and um, it just wouldn't go through the metal detector without them flipping out, and they couldn't really understand it, and so I had to leave it behind. Uh, which was frustrating, as you can imagine. So I came up with this idea, well, if I carry a kettlebell, um, they'll understand what it is, right? They can scan it and see it, and there's, there's not fabric that they have to go inside and look. The problem I had was when I landed here from Japan Friday night, I walked right into an explosion, and um, it looks like I'm carrying around a bomb, which was not, it, that wasn't the plan. It does. It looks like one of those cartoon cannonball bombs. Exactly. exactly. So, so I got a lot of strange looks from the 500 cops that are on the street, men and women, over the last few days. Yeah. yeah. I, I want to talk to you about adaptability. Obviously, yeah. that's a big theme of yours and an important part of the Spartan races. Sure. But you're also adapting quite a bit now. You mentioned now a couple times that you're living in Japan. What what is what's it like living over there? Does do you feel do you feel different? Do you feel like you fit in there? Or are you being forced to adapt on a daily basis? And how does that go for you? So so um, you've seen Kill Bill. Yeah. So I had this dream when we had children. We have four children that um, I would have like a master living with us, some some kind of martial art, whether it was a samurai teacher, whatever it is. And so we lived on a farm. Uh, first 10 years of our children's lives up in Vermont. And I was uh, fortunate enough, we were fortunate enough to bring over a Kung Fu master from China. So this idea of Asia is not new. And he lived with us for four years and woke the kids up at 5.45 a.m. every day and trained them. And so when our oldest just turned 10 or nine last year, I said to my wife, why don't we move to Asia? So our first stop last year before I get to Japan was Singapore. And so last year we did Singapore, which was great. On vacation over the winter, we went to Japan skiing, fell in love with it, all with an intent of growing Spartan in Asia. And in that, um, in my mind for Japan was um, The Last Samurai with Tom Cruise, yeah. right? So I was like, oh, we got we to go do Japan and teach the kids that whole um, art. And so we arrived three weeks, three weeks ago, and um, it's awesome. And here's the crazy thing about Japan. So I'm a maniac. I've got my kids doing two-a-days for four-plus years with this kung fu master in Vermont. My wife thinks I'm crazy. My in-laws think I'm crazy. Everybody I talk to says you're too hard on the kids. They're going to turn out to be either like killers or CIA agents or something. I get to Japan. They make me look timid. The parents there are animals in, in, a, in a good way. Like the kids do six hours of practice on Sunday. 
They're doing 90 minutes in the pool every single day and training like college athletes. So um, I'm psyched to be um, at the low level of intensity as a parent in, in Japan. So your kids are over there with you. You moved the oh, whole yeah, family. The whole family, yeah, we're yeah. all there. Yeah, that's awesome. It's great. And have you put down roots Spartan-wise over there in Asia? And so, how, yes. how different is it? So last year we set up all Southeast Asia, right? We got that all rolling. And, and now Japan, Japan's been the hardest market to crack in the entire world. There isn't a market we, we have gone to where it's just not, we have a meeting, we shake hands, we got things going. Japan is so tight and so organized and so diligent that um, I just can't seem to make it past the meetings. And, and um, so I said, I'm, we're going to move there. We like it anyway. We get the samurai bonus and, um, and we're going to make it happen. So this spring we're going to put on a race. I don't know how we're going to do it. We don't, we don't have anything planned yet, but it's going to happen. So stay tuned. Touch base with me. Come spring, there will be a race in Japan. So I want to ask you about running. Yep. How important a part of Spartan is running and being a runner? Well, so, you know, we're somewhere between, let's call it 15 and 35 obstacles on a course. And we're somewhere between 3 miles and 13 miles. So there's a lot of dead space in there. That means there's a lot of running. And, and so you, whether you like it or not, not, there are a lot of people that don't like running. And, and the obstacles certainly spruce it up and make it more fun. But, but that dead space, that half mile, three quarters of a mile, you're running. you got to be a runner. And what about your early running life? Yeah, so um, I was never a runner. Um, my mom got into yoga, meditation, and health foods, God, 70s, right? And uh, introduces my sister and I to this whole concept. We're in an Italian neighborhood where ganolis and raviolis were the, the talk of the, the dinner, at the dinner table. You and grew up in Queens. I grew up in Queens in, in a, a little neighborhood called Howard Beach. And... Um, and so she, she finds uh, all this, this new age stuff, which would have been normal in California, but was not normal um, in Queens, and then stumbles upon the Transcendence Run in, in Queens. Sweet Chinmoy. Yeah, I, I don't know how to pronounce the name. And um, 3,000 mile run, one mile loop, eight people sign up for the thing. You literally run around the block for, for eternity. Yeah, it's like, what, 90 days or something, yeah. they're running around. But but as a kid, seeing that, right, and, and then realizing, oh, my God, you can do anything in life. If you could do that, you could do anything. And so, so did you literally watch her go? Do you remember going and watching oh, her yeah, run? Oh, no, we, yeah, we'd see it. Yeah, we'd see we'd see that, as uh, my sister and I, and that was, uh, but that wasn't even the hard stuff. The hard, she would sit for like 12 days and meditate. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like she was like off her rocker and um, in a good way. And... And so that was the beginning of this whole Spartan thing. So that, um, was, the, that was the seed for you, was, was watching it, your mom. It. I didn't know it was a seed at the yeah. time, but ultimately that was, that was the seed. It came later. I stumbled upon um, this stuff. But, and, and then it was, my mind was open to it from, yeah. from seeing all that. Is your mom still alive? No, she didn't make it. Neither her or my father got out alive. It <laughs> didn't work out for them. I hear that happens to all it of us. It happens to all of us, yep. Another part of the seed story, at least that I read, was that uh, when you were living in Queens, your father had some connections, the, again, back to the legend of Joe DeSena, had some connections with organized crime. And that one night around the dinner table, conversation turned to people going to jail, doing time, long, long sentences, 10, 20, 30 years. And you started wondering... If that ever happened to me, I wonder. I could wonder I, if I, I could cut the, it. Nah, could I do the time? Is that, is that a true story? 
It's true, but it was not one night at the dinner table. It was it permeated the entire existence of, of my childhood with my sister. I mean, uh, we if you saw Goodfellas, we grew up across the street from that. Yeah. Um, it was organized crime capital of the world. So that was the discussion, not at the dinner table, but at the breakfast table at the you know corner store. And um, you wanted to be the guy in the Cadillac that pulled up, right? My so. Yeah, that was what all the boys were thinking was, could, could you do the time? And so... Um, and at the time, did you think you could? I think I, I think I just kept testing myself, right? I would take, literally, I would take cold showers. I would carry rocks around the block. I mean, how, how do you practice for that? Like, yeah. You know what I mean? So, so that was my, those were my practices, I guess. And you just imagined that those would match the things that you would face if you were in prison? How did you come well, up with carrying rocks around it, the block? Well, in the neighborhood, it was called college. Right. So that's how people went to college. And and when they got out, then they were like approved and and had had a degree as crazy as it sounds. That's what it was. And so, um, yeah, I don't I mean, you could lock yourself up in a bathroom, I guess. Like, what else would you do? Right. You carry a rock. I don't know. You take a cold shower. You don't turn on the air conditioning. Those are things I did to test. Yeah. And then you started your own pool cleaning company, right, and, and sold that, and then eventually ended up on Wall Street as a, as a trader, right? My, my neighbor was the head of uh, the Banana Organized Crime family, and I didn't know it. I was a young kid, and uh, he had all daughters, and he took me in like his son, and he said, uh, he saw my family was getting divorced, and it was messy, and my dad was losing money, and he said, come over, kid, and you know, clean my pool. And so then I started having dinner over there, and then before you know it, he recommended another boss. And before you know it, I had 750 customers. That led to doing cement work and brick work and building houses. And it, it really turned into a significant business that when I graduated college, that's what I was going to do. There was no need to go get a job. It was a, it was a, I was set for the rest of my life with this business. Yeah. Um, but at college, I had met another Italian guy that was on the right side of the fence. And he took a liking to me and he guided me to go to Wall Street. And um, I ultimately sold that business went to Wall Street, did a decade there. I mean, anybody listening to this is going to kill me for saying it, but they weren't much different, <laughs> the two sides, to be honest with you. One wore suits and had a pen. The other one, you know, didn't wear, wore sweatsuits <laughs> and so, didn't have a pen. And the, and the areas of commonality uh, were what? Well, I mean, they were both uh, type A people, right? Very aggressive hustlers, got it done, but um, you had to be able to sell, right? You had to convince people of things. Um, one group did it through fear, I guess. The other one did it through greed. Well, I guess fear and greed and greed, but but um, but yeah. And and it was a it was much better to do it legally and not have to go to jail. Yeah. So that makes me think of mor- morality. Yeah. You seem to have a pretty strong moral code. How did you emerge from those two worlds with that intact? You know, I, I probably, it would have been a lot more difficult. I'd be a different person had my mom not found that other path in the 70s, right, and introduced this whole idea of, um, I mean, she was definitely more religious. She was, um, yeah, she introduced a lot of stuff that was not being introduced in Howard Beach. And, um, and so my sister and I are definitely different people because of it. Um, I mean, most of my friends from that time were either dead or in jail, mm-hmm. so... So did you yeah. feel when you were working on Wall Street that you were in some sense at the top of the world? It was awesome. I mean, I, I, we were on the 59th floor. We had a, we had a business. I ultimately built a, a firm, and we were on the 59th floor of the Trump building. 
um, we were on top of the world. Literally. <laughs> Literally. Yeah. It was, yeah, I mean, who, I got to kiss the ground every day, right? Because, like, my whole life, it's unbelievable. I got four healthy kids. I got a great wife. I got um, a kettlebell. I mean, what, what, <laughs> is, what is there not to be thankful for here? But as you say in your, in your new audio book, which I just listened to, you were sitting in your chair getting plump. I was getting plump, right? I was getting plump. I, um, you know, money took over as the focus and we were, we were, a lot of it was going through our hands on a daily basis. And so, um, other stuff falls off the radar. You're not going to the gym if you can make money, right? You're not eating healthy if you can make money. We were just, we were focused on making money and, um, and it didn't feel good. It just, you just don't feel healthy. It just didn't feel right. And so I was lucky. The elevator was busted one day. I'm running up the stairs because I can't take the elevator. And in the stairwell is this guy who was on the cover of Men's Health, ripped specimen. And he's carrying dumbbells up the stairs, thus the kettlebell with me today. <laughs> and um, we start talking as we're going up to my floor. And he convinces me to meet him in the morning. We're going to start working out together. I'm a pretty likable guy, and, and I was unlike what you said. <laughs> and, um, and we started working out together, and he introduced me to adventure racing. And this is probably mid to late 90s, mid 90s, and, um, and that was it. I was hooked. I felt like I was doing construction again, and I was alive, and I was sweating and, and, and healthy, and it was great. So you showed up the next morning and met him and did what? Uh, we ran some stairs. I think he helped me do some sit-ups. I mean, I was a mess. I was a mess. But um, it's, it's hard to imagine you being a mess. What do you mean you were a mess? You were like, what, 5, 10 pounds overweight? or No, I mean, right now I'm probably 175. I was probably 200, okay. so 25 pounds, okay. right, over, over fighting weight and, um, and not in great shape. I could trade a stock or a derivative pretty easily. <laughs> I wasn't doing sit-ups that easily. So, so was there a, a single moment where you realized that you wanted to not just get in shape, but really change your life and, and leave this firm that you built and eventually start Spartan? Or was it something that happened over time? Well, the whole time that I was at my trading desk, I had a picture of a red barn. I was going there one way or another. I was getting the same way we're going to have this race in the spring in Japan or we're going to be in the Olympics. One way or another, I was getting to a red barn. Huh. And, and so I was on Wall Street for a period of time. I didn't know how long that period of time was, but I was not going to stay forever. This was the one thing I never wanted to do in my life was sit in front of a computer. And somehow I was there for a decade. And, um, and so I get it. I, I, now I'm doing these races and I'm feeling fantastic, these, these adventure races. And then I just keep asking, what's harder? What's the, what's the toughest challenge in the world? Give me something harder. Give me something harder. And I just kept uh, running around the world doing these crazy events, feeling great. As I was doing them, there were multi-day events. I was thinking, I'm a business person. Could I put on an event like this? Could I live in this place wherever I am in the world? And so, um, so I started putting on events in 2001. I started putting on events, lost money at every event I put on, um, but it was a blast. It was a blast because I love roping people in to, and torturing them. I just, I don't know if it's a Howard Beach thing or what it is, but, but if I'm awake at 5 a.m., I want everybody awake. If, if I'm going to bed early, I want everybody to go to bed. I'm just, you know, if I'm not drinking, nobody's drinking. <laughs> I'm just a crazy person that way. And so, um, so anyway, I started putting on these races, and I, would, uh, I had a tough time getting cu people to come do the races. Now, are these the death races, or was there something that preceded those? Preceded, yeah, yeah, preceded that. And um, just to give you an idea of what I was, like, I would pay for a bus to bring people, let's say, from New York to Vermont. 
Now people would say, oh, I can't do it. I'm not in shape or whatever. And I'd say, oh, we're just having a barbecue. I didn't want to tell them what we were really doing because if I told them we were, there was no way they were going to do it. And then I'd wake them up early in the morning. They'd say, why are we getting up so early for a barbecue? I'd nah, don't worry about it. It's up in the mountains. We just got to <laughs> just get hiking a little bit. Before you know it, they're 13 miles into a barbecue. <laughs> there is no barbecue. So um, what do people say when you drop the dime on them? It was transformational. Right. So so you're done that night. You're sitting down having dinner with everybody. You're, you're laughing about how I just roped people into 250 mile bike rides that they had no idea they were going to do long runs, hikes. And um, it was always transformational, just like what I remembered my mother was doing to people. And so it became clear in 2010 that um, I got to do this on a mass scale. I got I got to transform millions of people's lives the way my mother transform my life. Um, the big question, the $64 million question was, um, would they come? Right? Would, would, could I get the masses? Because I couldn't get, I couldn't get 50 people to come do the races for the previous decade. And so, um, so I think the confluence of um, Iraq, right? So you had all these military people, uh, CrossFit, social media, and then the right name, Spartan, the right, the right event. We got lucky with with the obstacle, and the fact that it was on brand and so authentic, and it had. Um, and I was. It wasn't about a party, right? It was about a, a lifestyle change, and everything just. Um, and and I spent an absolute fortune, um, marketing it and trying to make it work. Uh, it all came together, and and we got this great brand now. So as you said, you love roping people into extreme challenges that they yes. don't expect, right? On one hand, that sounds kind of sadistic. Yeah, but. It also sounds to me that it's all—it's quite optimistic, because what it says is that you recognize capacity or potential in people that they they may not even see in themselves. Well, is, is that right? Yeah, I mean, you could you could say that um, I'm a very optimistic person, but but I'm going to knock myself down a couple of rungs after what you just said by saying every human being has the capacity. If we were doing this interview a hundred years ago, it would be like on horses. Right. And we would have to deal with uh, all kinds of stuff going on between here and California as we're as we're making our way across the country. So I just say to people, give me a break. If there was a car accident, we would have to walk 26 miles to safety. You get it done. So um, it's not that I'm saying, oh, my God, that person is so great. We all have that ability. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And 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 I think I hate wasting food. I hate wasting capacity. Like when I see somebody not doing what they could be doing, that drives me crazy. Um, I want to talk to you about obstacles. Yeah, that's fine. Do you have a favorite obstacle in your races? And how do you come up with the ideas for these things? Well, so um, my favorite, the way I operate, the way my mind operates is anything I don't like, I force myself to like. So um, I would say the spear throw, right? Because you miss the spear throw, you got to do 30 burpees. It's a burpee maker. So I don't, Really like it, so I like it. That's the one, right? <laughs> if that makes sense. I, I always gravitate towards the thing I don't want to do. So, yes, it makes sense, but explain it a little bit more. Why, yeah. why do you gravitate to the thing that you hate the most? Well, because it's so important that we have a growth mindset in, in life, right? That we, um, we challenge ourselves, we overcome things. Uh, the brain is neuroplastic. Not to get all scientific on you, but the brain actually changes when we challenge ourselves. And so I say to people all the time, um, unless you're perfectly happy with the way you are and everything, you know, your job, everything is, is perfect, then don't change anything. But most people aren't. Most people need a change, and the way you get a change is by changing. 
And so I attack the things I'm not good at. I don't, I'm afraid of sharks, right? Don't tell anybody. I'm afraid of sharks. So what do I do? I swim in the ocean, right? Uh, um, I don't really feel like taking a cold shower. So what do I do? Take a cold shower. I don't really want to do 300 burpees in the morning. You think I really want to carry this kettlebell around? I don't want to. Who would want to carry a kettlebell around? I do it. So when you're swimming in the ocean, are you thinking about sharks? Oh, yeah. What are you telling yourself? Uh, I'm telling myself, my mother used to, um, she was a big believer in positive thought, right? So um, she was like, you know, don't say things that you don't want to happen. Don't think things. So I'm, I'm fighting my own thoughts. I also, I will share yeah, with you, yeah, I'm afraid of sharks as well. Even when I'm yeah. swimming in freshwater lakes, really? I'm afraid of sharks. Really? I yeah. was standing on a chair in a bathtub for a long time. I'm kidding. To get... <laughs> At this point, we had to end the standing in the office portion of the interview because Joe had to be across town at another appointment. And since he was walking, we decided to continue our conversation through the streets of Manhattan. So we headed down the elevator, through the lobby, and out into the street. That's when things got interesting. It was just a day after a man had set off a bomb in downtown New York City. The UN General Assembly was in town, and the Clinton Global Initiative was going on. It was one of those perfect storms in New York City. It was total gridlock. Midtown Manhattan was basically shut down. Cars couldn't get anywhere. People were walking around, freaking out. Oh, and it was starting to rain. The city streets were even more chaotic than normal. Cops and security personnel were everywhere, clogging up the street. Traffic was a mess. It was enough to drive any New Yorker crazy. And you could just feel people's fury at not being able to get where they needed to go. And here was Joe, about to wade into this mess while hauling a 44-pound kettlebell. Right before we started walking to his next appointment, it was about a mile, I asked him what he thought of how frustrated everyone was and what he thought about all the madness going on around him. I think the reason, let's, let's start walking. I think the reason people flip out over simple things is because their expectations are really high and their, thresh, their threshold, their tolerance levels are really low. Years ago, think about it, you and I are living in a cave. We've got massive tolerance for pain. We just don't want to get eaten by a lion when we go out for pit, piss in the morning. And we've got really low expectations. Like, we just want the sun to rise. That would be enough, right? <laughs> now, if there's not Wi-Fi on the plane, you flip out. A thousand cops on the street, UN General Assembly, ruining my life. My coffee's cold, it's raining out, I'm pissed off. The other day, I'm on this flight, my kettlebell, coming from Tokyo. My assistant, I don't know why, she booked me through Hong Kong. There is no reason to fly through Hong Kong if you're coming from Tokyo it doubled the length of my trip from 13 hours to 27 hours. I have every reason to get upset. They forgot my gluten-free meal. I got a baby screaming next to me. And then I started thinking, this was 100 years ago. This would be a 110-day trip. I would be on a boat. 10% of the people would die. Sharks changed their migratory patterns because they would throw the 10% of the people off the boat, and the sharks would follow the boats and eat those bodies. I have nothing to complain about. I'll take the 27 hours, <laughs> right? So I think, I think people flip out because we have everything. I'm going to hand you this kettlebell. You're going to have nothing to be upset about because, <laughs> because the kettlebell sucks. So here you go. Right. Change your frame of reference. 44 pounds, you 44 said? 44 pounds. All right. Yeah. 
All right, now keep keep going with your questions. Wow, you're, you're walking a little faster all I'm of a sudden. I'm feeling great. You got a backpack on. What's in your backpack? My entire uh, existence for the next five weeks, I packed into this thing. I've got uh, one pair of pants, a belt, obviously my toothbrush. Um, I've got a couple of pairs of socks, a couple of pairs of underwear, workout clothes. I'm, I got everything I need. Five weeks. That's Five all weeks. you need. That's all I need. Along the way, you wash your clothes. But um, very Spartan lifestyle, very Spartan existence. You got a cell phone in there? Yeah, so I'm leaving Tokyo, and um, I left my cell phone in a taxi. Never happened to me before. So at first, I was in a complete panic, because when you don't have a cell phone, what do you do? I couldn't call anybody to get it. All my email, like, you can't do anything. So I just rolled the dice, got on the plane anyway, and said, I'm gonna live without a cell phone. And so over the last three days, I haven't had a cell phone. And I gotta tell you, I'm engaging in conversations. I'm looking people in the eyes. I'm actually talking to them. I'm not looking down at my phone. I am loving it. I am sure when I get back to my computer, I'm gonna have about 700 emails backed up. But, um, but I'm kind of psyched, and my, my plan now is on January 1st, I'm gonna have a ceremony, I'm gonna throw it away for good. I don't want a cell phone anymore. So I'm just gonna live with a computer, and uh, when you, know, you get Wi-Fi, that's when I'll get on the computer and I'll answer emails, otherwise, no more cell phone, I'm done. That's the other thing with the kettlebell, you see what he did? You start rolling the dice, we're getting across the street because, <laughs> because you don't want to stand there waiting, car carrying it. <laughs> I know all your tricks. Joe, we, we were talking about your kids earlier. Yeah. And uh, as a father, I've got two boys, a little yeah. older than yours. Yeah. I just want to ask you about this story that I read. Yeah. And here's the story. You took one of your boys, I can't remember which one. Charlie. Charlie. I think he was five at the time. Yeah. To swim yeah. a mile across a lake. Yes. Right? And, and couldn't swim at the time. Nope. So you put on a life, life preserver or something. Yeah. Right, you're, sw you're swimming along with him, yeah. and I guess he's like dog paddling or something, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And how cold is the water, do you think? No, you it, remember? Wasn't, it wasn't that cold, but for these little guys, I guess they get colder than we get. It wasn't, it wasn't that cold, but it was cloudy, it was getting later in the day, the sun was going down. <laughs> it took us a while. And, and you got, what, three quarters of the way across? We were three quarters of the way across, and all of a sudden this neighbor, this woman on her dock, starts screaming. And she thinks it's ridiculous that I got this kid in the water. She paddles out in her little kayak, and we literally get in a fight out there in front of my son. She's trying to get the kid in the boat. And I'm like, Charlie, we are a quarter mile from greatness. Let's, you know, obviously if the kid's in danger, I'm gonna get him out of the water. But um, we weren't in danger, we were fine. It is the same thing that happens to me if I'm at a ski resort with my kids, right? Somebody comes up, oh, let me give your kids cookies. Well, you're at the bank. Here, take some lollipops. And it's like, you ju you're ruining my plan for my kids. Why are you, you know what I mean? Like, I need help the other way. I don't need help with cookies, cake, getting them out of the world. I need help. I need the rest of the world coming my way, right? Yeah. So, so when people come up and offer your kids sugar, you, you tell them no? It's a tough situation because here you are, that, that terrible dad in front of your kids, right? You don't want to push them away from it so much that they rebel and then they start chasing it. It's a tough, tough situation. My wife is a lot more level-headed than me when it comes to this stuff. 
But I go back to my mom. My mom was tough as nails when it came to junk food. She threw me out of the house if I came in the house with bad food. So yeah, who knows? I never parented before, neither did you. We'll see what the outcome is, right? I mean, I'm, uh, I'm definitely a little bit of an extreme nut on this stuff. So what interested me about that story as much as anything was that the woman's point of view, who's a, a neighbor, I guess, or did she know you guys? She didn't know me, no. Okay, no. but it was her reaction, and in her mind, back to that sadism op, um, optimism thing, she, right. she was like, this guy's a sadist. Well, every generation gets softer, certainly in the first world countries, right? And, um, and so, I mean, you think about it, uh, again, 100 years ago, that would be like a recreational swim for a five-year-old. You kidding me? Women, women, there are women in Africa that go out 20 plus miles to get water. Like, give me a break. Yeah. Well, it'd be okay. She, I wonder if she would have complained had Charlie been sitting for five hours playing video games. Right. Right? Would she have complained and come in the house and ripped them off the couch? Probably not, because that's considered that's normal. totally normal. Right. So, yeah. I, um, but I got a better story for you. I went to Kyoto this winter, and I checked out the Marathon Monks. You know these guys? Yeah. For those listeners that don't know what they are, they are a sect of monks sitting in the, on a mountaintop in Kyoto, Japan. They've been there like 800 years. And the deal is, you want to become a monk, basically you knock on the door and you're like, look, I'm in, I, I'm, I'm committed, I want to be a monk. They're like, all right, go run this course, throw these sandals on, wear this robe, do 100 days in a row of 25 plus miles on the mountain, and then let me know you're still serious. So you knock out your 100 days with the robe and the, and the wooden sandals, and they're like, hey, good job, now take this sword, you got 800 more days, if you decide to quit, you gotta kill yourself. So I had to go see these guys. So I go there, I bring my family, and it's cold, we're out there in December. It's like a little snow on the ground. I got, I got my three-year-old, I got all four kids, and we're, I'm, my, I can't tell my wife that we're gonna hike 25 miles that day, but I want, the, I want everybody to see it, right? So I just start going, and, and we're about six hours into this thing now, they all wanna kill me. And along the way, what, what have you told them that you're going to do? <laughs> well, we're just going to go check out Kyoto and the trails and this cool thing. And there's these monks, but I didn't tell them the distance. So, um, so six hours go by. Six hours go by. The sun's going down. Same routine. Everybody's getting to know me by now. And um, along the way, I'm like, see, uh, Charlie and Jack, Catherine, that guy's a quitter. Look at that tombstone. He had to kill himself. He didn't finish. And then you'd see these big tombstones of the uh, monks that actually got it done. And they inscribed be number 55. That was the 55th monk to knock out the 900 days. So anyway, it was, it was a great learning lesson. We ended up getting lost. And um, it was a bit of a show. But uh, we ultimately popped out of the cemetery. Uh, uh, Fitting. <laughs> and um, and uh, my wife does not want to go back to Kyoto, needless to say. But anyway. So what was your kids' reactions to those plaques and um, those monuments? I don't know if they really got it, but um, you just never know what kids, right? You say all these things, you don't know that one sentence that clicks and is transformative for them. Hopefully um, the impact of actually seeing a tombstone of a quitter that had to kill himself because he couldn't continue, hopefully that was impactful. Because that's the level of commitment to play at, right, in life? I mean, that's that's... Awesome. So as a parent, yeah. do you worry that you're overdoing it? 
that you're going too hard on them, that they're going to have unrealistic expectations of themselves ever? I, I definitely thought I was going too hard at times, and no one has let me not think that because I, I hear it from everybody. However, moving to Tokyo and being there the last three weeks, I am at like a feather duster level compared to how serious the Japanese parents are with their kids. We've been to wrestling practices now, we've been to swim practices. The Japanese take it to a whole other level. And so um, I think even my family realizes now that I've been, I've been kind of soft relative to other parts of the world. Kind of soft. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now, now in fairness, you look at the Olympics, look at how many Americans medaled versus the Japanese. Clearly we're doing something right. I don't think you can keep that level of intensity up on children for 12, 13 years. It's just too much. But a year in Japan, it'd be good for my family to see that Joe's kind of normal. So after a year, you're going to move back to the farm in Vermont? We don't know. We don't know. I'd, I'd love to be back on the farm, but um, there's a big world out there that needs Spartan. So we don't know where's next. Maybe we'll go to the Middle East. I don't know. We'll see. So this new way of living, this Spartan way of living, yeah. what does it do for the people that we're seeing on the sidewalk right now? Some of these men or women decided to change their lives that way, do some Spartan races. Well, what does it do for the rest of their lives when they come back first, from a race or a workout? Yeah, so first thing is, look, at most of the people we've run into so far on this hike are out of shape, right? And so they're walking slower, they're breathing harder, and so obviously that changes. Spartan is scary enough of a concept that they quickly start going to bed earlier, they're drinking a little less, they're eating healthier, they're hanging out with better friends, and they become part of a community that uh, supports all the, those thoughts and that lifestyle. So, um, and then before you know it, they feel like they got purpose in life and, and they just feel better about themselves. Um, People love being part of a, a community, right? And, and, you know, they say we are an average of our five best friends. And so now all of a sudden you got fr friends that are pulling you up in life instead of dragging you down. So aside from the tattoos they get, I see all upside with Spartan. <laughs> aside from the tattoos. I, I mean, I had people send me emails where they got face tattoos of our logo. So that's a little aggressive, but... <laughs> Other than that, I can't see any downside to this lifestyle. You got any tattoos? I do. Yeah, yeah I do. What do you got? I got my mother's name in uh, a Chinese character on my arm. And then I lost a bet with my wife and I got a tattoo on my hip that says I'll love her forever, basically. So, I'm hooked. What was your mom's name? Jean. Jean. You think yeah. about her every day? I do. Yeah, yeah I, wish, I wish she was here to, um, to see all that. She would, get a, she would get a kick out of this. Yeah, what, what would she say? Uh, she would love it. I mean, this was her whole purpose in life, too. So, um, yeah, she would be, uh, she'd be pretty pumped. I don't know if she, uh, yeah, I think she'd probably push my kids harder than I push them. Yeah. She was tough. How did she die? Cancer. She had cancer, and uh, her sister died of cancer. Her mother died of cancer. Um, and then my dad, here's a, it's a funny story. No death is funny, but my dad would laugh about it if he was alive. So my mom dies, and my dad still eats all the crappy foods, the eggplant parmesan, the uh, ravioli, the pizzas, the cheesecakes. And I'm like, Dad, the food is going to kill you. 20 years after my mom, every, 
Dad, the food is going to kill you. The food's going to kill you. Ah, you don't know what you're talking about. They got pesticides on vegetables. You don't need these vegetables. Those are dangerous. They got pesticides on the vegetables. <laughs> yeah, don't yeah. worry about it. In other words, in other yeah. words, you can't eat vegetables, right? You're better off with ravioli. Oh, I see. So, so, um, so I'm I'm pounding this in his head for 20 years. He's in and out of hospitals. Doesn't want to listen to me. You know how he died? In the hospital, he chokes on a roast beef sandwich and dies in the hospital. Whoa. And the only reason I could laugh about it, because like the dad, the food's gonna kill you, but I didn't, I didn't mean that way. And he would laugh about it if he was alive. So anyway, be careful what you eat out there if you're listening. So we're pretty close to where you grew up. We're here in Manhattan. You grew up in Queens. I grew up in Queens, yeah. You go back home? I don't go back home. There's nobody left in the, in the neighborhood for, uh, for me to go back to. No. So not too long ago, you moved up to this farm in Pittsfield, Vermont, right? Moved up to the farm in 2005. Basically did 10 years on the farm. And then I uh, went to Singapore. And I read some stuff that... You getting tired of that thing yet or what? I'm getting a little bit tired. Good, right? Man, my four, I, maybe you've noticed that my, you're, 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 my duration in each hand is getting shorter. Exactly, that's what happens to me. And I noticed I've done it like yeah. three, four seconds exactly. per hand. Exactly. So, yeah, we're on the farm. We had cows, chickens, Scottish Highlanders. Um, it was absolutely awesome. We still have the farm, and uh, everybody's always invited. I invited one time a million people on Facebook. My wife had a heart attack. But uh, everybody's always invited. They can come up and train, and we've got room. We've got 700 acres. We've got room for 100 people, and it's, uh, it's just awesome. And you get a fair amount of people who are, for one reason or another, looking to turn their lives around. Yeah, we get right? people that come up. Most of them quit after a few days on the farm. They just they realize that uh, it's way too, it's, it's more exciting sounding than actually doing the work. Well, what do you ask them to do? They got to get involved. They got to roll up their sleeves and actually work. And the uh, problem is most people that are having problems that want to transform themselves, they don't really want to do the work, yeah. right? Is that the biggest problem? That's the biggest problem. When you're doing How do you solve that problem? Do the work. <laughs> All right? Just that simple? One foot in front of the other. Admiral McRaven said, you want to change the world, start by making your bed. You got to just get up and get moving. Think about how many people have said to you, right, that have some funk in life, and they say, oh, well, I don't really want to do that. I'm looking for it. No, that's not the way it works. The way life works is momentum. Just get some momentum going. And before you know it, you end up in exactly where you should be. Because if you sit around and analyze and think about, well, I don't really want to do this. I don't, you don't go anywhere. Indecision is the worst decision. So I, my policy in life is just move forward, right? You got any regrets? Um, I don't think I, I mean, I can't really regret anything because um, look at you and I are in Manhattan. We're carrying a kettlebell. We're talking on a podcast healthy, happy. How can I, compl I can't complain about anything. I can't change. My life has been unbelievable. First of all, I'm alive. That's a big one, right? Like we're alive and we're healthy. Forget about everything else we have. Get to go on a giant airplane, leave Tokyo, land. And I mean, it's unbelievable. Life is unbelievable. So what are you going to do on this flight when you fly to Tokyo? That's a long flight, right? You get up and do burpees in the aisle, or how does that work? I do do some burpees. I'm trying to keep the blood flowing. You know, when you're flying as much as I'm flying, 
um, you've got to make sure you don't get a blood clot. So uh, yeah, I'm moving around. I'm upsetting the stewardesses because they really want you sitting down with the seatbelt on, but I'm not really one for that. So I like to do laps, burpees, all kinds of things. Yeah. So how many burpees will you do in the aisle? I could knock out 50 in the aisle um, if I don't annoy it, you know, because sometimes the passengers get upset. What do they say? They'll just uh, call the stewardess, push the button, like that, you know, because it could be some lunatic, right? Like, why would you be going up and down like that? Wait till they see your kettlebell. Exactly. The kettlebell they made me check on this flight. And so I came through customs and I went to bag check. And I don't normally have anything in bag check. So I'm sitting there waiting and waiting and waiting. And I'm getting frustrated. And I'm thinking they lost the kettlebell. And all of a sudden I hear, boom, <laughs> boom, 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 boom. <laughs> And it comes flying down the thing. It dents the stainless steel. It knocks like 12 pieces of luggage across the floor. It lands next to the security guy. And I'm thinking, I don't even want to walk over there and say that that's mine. I'm just going to stand here for a little while and make believe that that, that that didn't just happen. Obviously, a lot of runners listen to the Runner's World show. Yeah. A lot of them know about Spartan, obviously. You know where we're going? By yeah, that? we're close. OK, go ahead. A lot of them, I'm sure, thinking about trying a Spartan. Yeah. What advice do you have to people who really are just runners, or at least see themselves as just runners, who, you know, who may want to try an obstacle course race or a Spartan? You know, this is going to sound terrible, but just bear with this. I have seen a lot of runners in my time, as you guys have. And running is not enough. You look at, um, you look at their upper bodies. They don't have an upper body. So, so they don't, have, they don't, they don't what? have an upper body, right? They, I saw a runner uh, yesterday or the day before. I was running around with the kettlebell Sunday morning. This guy clearly was a runner. I mean, he's running every day. You could tell. His body looked terrible. And it's because he wasn't doing other stuff. So running's not enough. You've got to be crawling, climbing, jumping, stretching, swimming. And... Um, and so I know it's easy because I, I put blinders on too and I get into one thing like my kettlebell is a thing now and then you just do that. But um, you got to mix it up if you want to be healthy. And that's the whole reason you probably started running to begin with, to be healthy. Well, we are at your destination. I'm not sure I've ever been happier to arrive anywhere in New York City in my life. <laughs> uh, I think I'm over here. Okay. All right, well. You're out. Joe DeSanta, thank Good you man. very much for joining us. Your grip is stronger. From, from when I first I'm met you. I'm <laughs> surprised I can even squeeze anything right now, to be honest with you. you were, I got to catch my breath. Pleasure talking with you and walking with you. I Thanks for like joining us. I feel like you've turned into steel. You've transformed in the last 20 minutes. But that's what I was talking about, right? I get people to do things they otherwise wouldn't have done. You had no intention of carrying a kettlebell 20 blocks today. When I woke up, that was not that was in the cards at all. No. So thanks for that. See you right. Take care. Thanks, Joe. Safe travels. All right. Okay, to see a photo of me with that kettlebell and with Joe DeSena on the streets of New York City, and for a link to Joe's podcast, Spartan Up, go to runnersworld.com slash audio. After my interview with Joe DeSena, I decided I just had to see how I would do in a Spartan race. So on a cold Saturday morning this past November, I took a trip up to Boston for my first ever obstacle course race. 
The obstacle course was actually set up in Fenway Park, home to my favorite baseball team, the Boston Red Sox. The morning of the race, I met a producer outside the stadium who was helping me record the experience. Coincidentally, his name was also David. David Goodman. David? David, yes. Hey, how are you? I'm good. Good to meet you. Spartan was setting up a sprint version of their race in the stadium. At just over three miles and with around 20 obstacles, the sprint is the shortest of the three Spartan races. The other two races are the Spartan Super, which is about eight miles and 25 obstacles, and the Spartan Beast, which is 13 plus miles of running with more than 30 obstacles. Good Lord. For today's sprint, we would be running all over Fenway Park, up the stands, down the stands, across the narrow aisles of seats, through the locker rooms, down under the tunnels of the stadium on the field itself. Along the way, we would be scaling walls ranging from four feet to eight feet high, climbing a free-swinging rope and ringing a bell at the very top, carrying various heavy objects around like cement blocks and sandbags and jugs of water, and throwing a spear. If we couldn't complete an obstacle, we would be penalized. That penalty? Burpees. Burpees, if you don't know, are a more sadistic form of a push-up. And if you don't know what they are, well, consider yourself lucky, because nothing gasses you quite like doing a bunch of burpees. So, yeah, climbing, throwing, jumping, imminent threat of burpees? I'll admit, when I was walking around outside Fenway Park, I was excited, but I was also feeling more than a little anxious. I've been curious about this phenomenon known as obstacle course racing for a couple years now, and I always want to see what this stuff is like myself, just to understand why it's so popular. And I'm also looking forward to just challenging myself in new ways. I like starting at the bottom of a learning curve and seeing what it takes to move up that learning curve. For some reason, I find that fun. (laughs) I don't encounter a lot of physical obstacles in my daily life. I don't climb a lot of ropes. I don't scale a lot of walls. I don't throw a lot of spears. So I have no idea how I'm going to do on this stuff. And the punishment, if you don't do well during this event, is you just have to do more exercise. You know, I'm, I'm pretty fit right now, but I'm, I'm a little nervous about how this is going to go. You see that some of the people here, men and women, incredibly fit incredibly strong. Um, There's a military presence here, so it definitely has that aspect to it. So it's, you know, kind of awesome in 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 a good way. But yeah, a little bit intimidating too. With that, I headed into the park to pick up my bib. Everybody needs two waivers, a Red Sox waiver and a Spartan waiver. There you go. Thank you very much. While standing in line, I noticed that the crowd was a little different from the crowds I'm used to seeing at running events. This didn't really help with my anxiety. I just saw a guy who had tights on his legs and they had shin guards on them. and. You know, I, seriously, I'm walking around looking at all these people. A lot of them are totally ripped and wearing equipment that I'm not familiar with. And I'm wondering, am I even less prepared for this than I think I am? I, d- I took some ibuprofen, some proactive ibuprofen this morning, and I brought more for after. Last name is Willie. W-I-L-L-E-Y. 
Oh, editor of Runner's World. Yeah. Hi, I'm a big fan. Awesome. What's your name? Nora. Hey, Nora. How are you? Good. Good to meet you. Um, you got any advice for me this morning? Uh, I don't. <laughs> not I'm really. Stay warm. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, guys. It's good to know you're here for me. Are you guys doing a podcast right now? We are. Yeah. Oh, that's exciting. I love that podcast. Thank you. Here you go. One four four one nine. All right. Nine fifteen a.m. Wave. After picking up my bib, I found the one guy I knew I could count on for advice. So I'm here with Todd Leiser, uh, a friend and, and former Rodale colleague who now works for Spartan. Um, and when I heard that you were working for Spartan, Todd, I was so excited for you because even when we were working together at Rodale and on Runner's World stuff, I knew what an obstacle course racing geek you had become. That's right. Uh, so enthusiastic. You, how many of these kinds of races I've have probably you done, done 22 something like that over the last four years so what is it about obstacle course racing in general that appealed to you so much you know four or five years ago and, and has gotten you even more enthusiastic about it you know I had been a 5k you know half marathon marathon guy you know having worked at Rodale and run, you know working with the runners world team you know got sucked into that for many years but sort of got bored with the you know hitting the pavement over and over and over a little bit uh, monotonous. What I love about it is um, the opportunity to really just stretch yourself, right? Do something uh, very different, you know? It has a combination of running, the trail running, but then, you know, getting out there, doing some doing some rope climbs, doing some, you know, pull-ups, getting over a wall, getting dirty. You know, we live in a culture right now where, you know, we don't get dirty anymore, but, uh, you know, you won't get dirty today here at Fenway, but if you hit, hit one of the mountain races, you'll, uh, you know, you'll get some uh, mud on you. But, uh, yeah, the 30 burpees can be surprising if you miss, you know, you miss five, six, seven obstacles out there. By the end, you're, you're feeling those burpees. That's a lot of burpees. And that's got to be part of the challenge here is as you make your way through the course, that the accumulated fatigue. That's exactly right. right. Yeah, that's what, that's what you'll notice today. You know, stadium races are fast, so this will be a quick race, um, unlike a mountain race where it's really more of a grind. You'll probably have sections here today where you're going to hit sort of multiple upper body, you know, movements in a row. And yeah, yeah definitely at the beginning, at the beginning. Oh, yeah. great. Yeah. So I'll be exhausted yeah. right away. We'll do some bear crawls probably up and down some of the the, uh, the ramps. So that'll be fun. Those, you know, that'll tax your upper body, get you warmed up. So I'm not worried about being cold, even though it's what, 36 degrees out here. We'll warm up pretty quick in there. All right. I'm excited. With that, I ditched my producer, David, who could not follow me around the course, unfortunately, or maybe for his sake, fortunately, and I headed off to the start line. A bit under an hour later, I finished and got my first ever Spartan medal. Never before have I worked so hard or taken so long to cover three miles. A little stiff. I'm a little stiff and tired. I was standing on the field just past the finish line, right near the Red Sox dugout, when I spotted Steph. She's a marathoner I had met before the race began under the grandstands, and Steph did not look stiff or tired. In fact... She looked like she could go out and do the whole thing all over again. Steph! Hi! How are you? Good, how are you? How did it go? Really good. It was a lot yeah? of fun. I could get over most of the walls. I was surprised. Did you have any burpees? Yeah, I did. I had them on the spear throwing. Yeah, me too. Yeah, it got me there. I got to work on my spear throwing skills. Yeah. 
I was shocked that I made it through the rope climb and I got through the monkey bar thing. I was like, oh, I could do more than I thought I could. Nice. Did the fact that you are a marathoner help you, do you think? Uh, I think it helped a little bit with like the endurance part and just yeah. knowing like, the mental part of like, yes, this takes a long time, but like, you can get through it. Well, congratulations. Thank Good you job. So Metal in hand, I headed out to watch all the action and to do sort of a post-mortem on my obstacle course experience. So we're standing on the warning track in dead center field at Fenway Park, 20 feet away from the bullpens, looking up in the, the stands, and there's just a bunch of athletes running around, just getting started. They're running waves here all day long, so you know these athletes that are going by us right now are literally just getting started. They probably got an hour of... Uh, hard physical challenge ahead of them but what a cool sight what a cool sight to see all these runners making their way through the stands at Fenway I did miss the spear throw so I did not have a burpee free day had to do 30 burpees on that and actually everybody had to do five burpees as part of one of the stations um, the rope climb was definitely hard I'm looking over at the rope climb right now. It comes late in the course. It's right in front of the Green Monster here on Fenway Park, which is pretty cool. But by the time you get there, you're tired. Your upper body is tired. Your grip is not strong. And I made it. But uh, Todd gave me a, a good tip about how to wrap my feet around the rope and be able to sort of step with my feet and not just pull with my hands. Otherwise, I would not have made it. And right before the rope climb, actually, there's a box jump. We had to do 20 box jumps, two, two, three feet off the ground. There was a heavy jump rope that we had to do 20 times. Everything's in 20s. And I'm fit enough to do, you know, 10 or 12 of these things. But it's those last 8 to 10 that makes such a difference. Um, so, and, and the running added up. I, I will say it was about three miles. It felt longer probably because it's a lot of stair climbing and you're zigzagging back and forth through the stands. I think I, we finished in about around 50 minutes, maybe 51, 52 minutes. So it was harder than I thought it was going to be. It was a blast and really good sense of camaraderie. You could see teammates, there's a team going by us right now. You could see teammates out there and you're allowed to help your teammates over the walls. I was running past people and, uh, you know, I always say, you know, good job, keep it up. And when people were going past me, we're saying the same thing. Very positive environment. It's cool. I mean, I probably did more push-ups today than I, you know, would have done in a single day and in years. You bang out 20 at the beginning. And then if you add the burpees, we did, what, 35 burpees today? I mean, I haven't done 55 push-ups in a day in years. So even that alone, training and, and doing more push-ups would make a big difference. And I think that's part of the appeal. It's not some kind of abstract technique that you need. It's pretty basic stuff. There's no secret to it. Uh, but all this stuff would make you a better runner. You know, training for this, strengthen your core, strengthen your quads, strengthen your lower back, some upper body strength. That's going to help you in a marathon, in a half marathon. This isn't the kind of fitness that just is for this one purpose. It helps you as an all-around athlete. It's cool, I like it. I like feeling a bit more well-rounded. And I like feeling that I know what I would need to work on 
to get better because I do want to come back and, and do one of these. And I want to do one outside. It's not even 11 a.m., but um, I, I wouldn't mind having a beer right now. I earned it. I think I earned a beer. By the way, the winning elite men's time that day was 21 minutes, 59 seconds. The elite women's winner came in at 27 minutes and 23 seconds. Those are insane times. Trust me. The men's master's winner, which was my division, did not make me feel any better. He clocked in at about 25 minutes. That's less than half my time of 51-52. So yes, lots of room for improvement, which is why I will be back. Spartan. Next time, count me in for something longer. A super or maybe, maybe even a beast. Which means I will be a lot muddier as well. And if you are in for the challenge, you're in luck because listeners of this podcast can get a 26% discount on their first or their next Spartan race. Just enter the promo code RUN26 after you sign up. That's R-U-N numeral 2, numeral 6. Maybe we'll see you out there. Next up is The Kick with producer Brian Dalek and our nutrition editor, Heather Mayer-Irvin. Okay, so last week there was a lot of attention given to a new shoe from Adidas. It's a 3D printed shoe. They call it the 3D Runner, Heather. And um, it's available to the public now. You can get it in the New York Adidas store, and it retails for $333. I know you can afford that for Christmas, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. $333, an easy little bit of money to drop before the holidays. But the other shoe story that caught my attention last week was about the first beer mile shoe. So who's this beer fiend? Yeah, so we've talked about the beer mile before. Just a quick recap. It's a one-mile race on a track, one lap, one beer, until you're done. That's a general overview of the beer mile. Sounds easy. Sounds easy and fun, right? So last week, Brooks announced its first signature shoe for a beer miler, and it was for Canadian Lewis Kent. And they signed him last year because at the Beer Mile World Championships, he set the 447 world record. It, it, it's been broken, but at the time, he was the top beer miler in the world. So they designed this Hyperion shoe, the Beer Mile Hyperion shoe. So it's a racing flat that's been out, but it has really cool details to it. So there's a red maple leaf on the heel. Of course, he's mm-hmm. Canadian. And the sock liners have these foamy pints on them <laughs> to really just go along with the theme. And the aglets, those little plastic things on the end of your shoelaces, they read Run Hoppy and Live Lager. So That's a perfect. great spin off of Brooks's Run Happy, too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> run exactly. Hoppy, Run Happy. Yeah. So why did they announce this last week? So it's a bit of great marketing, really, because the Beer Mile World Championships, they took place this past weekend in Austin, Texas. And Lewis, he was trying to regain his title in the event, um, going for the Beer Mile World Record again, or just trying to win. Un- unfortunately, though, Heather, he faced off with the current world record holder, Corey Belmore, also of Canada, I should say. A lot of great beer milers up in the great north. And I'm not surprised. He, he, did not, he did not win the race. He came in second. So what was the winning time? Belmore, he ran a 449 this year, and... 
while that still sounds really fast, that is 15 seconds off his world record time. I don't so, think I could drink a beer in like under 20 minutes. Exactly. One beer. One beer. Wow. And that's pushing it. No. Slow beer drinker over here. And then Kent, he, he finished second with a 4.59. So you gotta, you got to feel disappointed if you're him. It's a good showing, but at least you have a shoe named after you. At least you. you have a shoe. And that gives me my goal for 2017, which is I want to enter the bacon race that's held locally <laughs> and then win that, and then I can get a bacon-sponsored shoe. You might have to fight training editor Megan Keita for that. Bacon-sponsored shoe coming my way in 2017. Good luck. Okay, so speaking of bacon, speaking of food, I've been eating a lot this holiday season leading up to Christmas and New Year's, um, and I've been running a lot less. But when I do go out on the weekend, um, I feel a lot more sluggish, and I think that's because, one, I'm eating a lot more, and two, um, I'm not really fueling the way I would if I was really training in the summer. The good thing is you recently got up a couple stories about proper nutrition during this time of year. What what are some things I should be keeping in mind as I go out for maybe a longer run over an hour? Yeah, so actually in the winter months, the colder months, your body tends to use more fuel, not a ton more fuel, mm-hmm. but it tries to stay warm. So if you're shivering, your body uses energy for that. Um, and there's a type of fat, it's called brown fat in your body, and that generates heat and that requires energy. So when it's cold out, you tend to use a little bit more energy through that brown fat. Mm-hmm. You know, that being said, it doesn't mean you can eat whatever you want. No, not all the bacon I want. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but it does, you know, give you a little bit of wiggle room to have an extra, you know, roll at lunch or, you know, top your, your yogurt with an extra helping of berries. You know, we're talking just a little bit, but enough that will kind of give your, your body a boost during the colder months. Yeah, and there in, in this article, which we'll put on our episode 34 show page, you can check it out. There are other really quick tips for these ways to add a little bit to your diet that will help out. So check that out as well. And, you know, something else runners run into in the winter months is they tend to not hydrate as much. I don't. It's I don't either. I'm not really sweating. I don't feel thirsty. Mm-hmm. It's not hot. But uh, the cold weather can actually, you know, make you have to use the bathroom more, make you have agree. to pee more. And so if you're not drinking as much, and you're going to the bathroom more, you increase your risk of dehydration. Mm -hmm. But just because you're not sweating as much doesn't mean you can ditch the water bottle. You know, maybe you don't bring it with you, but you have some, you know, before and after your run. Um, In terms of, you know, you're running out for an hour, same thing, 60 minutes or more, you know, grab a little snack, a little gel. That doesn't change. But, you know, after you might have an extra handful of pretzels or something to make up for the, the cold weather. Okay, cool. And the other thing that makes cold weather running so difficult is just it's dark early. It's dark late when you leave work. Um, and the other thing that comes with that is vitamin D. Like, we don't think about that a lot, and we really should because it is important for us as runners and athletes. Yeah, so vitamin D, it's one of those hot vitamins that you keep hearing about. And, you know, we live in the Northeast, and in the Northeast, during those winter months, you're not getting the vitamin D from the sun. And actually, the sun is the best source of vitamin D. Yeah, it's so easy in the summer. It takes like an Mm -hmm. hour, and you've got your recommended amount. And you don't even need an hour. But, you know, even if you put on sunblock, you're still getting it. But once you hit those darker days, as you talked about, you're not getting it from the sun, which means you need to get it from your diet. Sounds easy. Mm-hmm. It's actually a very short list in your diet, and even less if you're, you know, vegan or vegetarian. Um, but you know, you want to load up on fatty fish, 
fortified foods, you'll see that, you know, cereals, breads, those are fortified with vitamin D, orange juice, milk, and eggs, and you want to eat the yolk. But it's really, really important to turn to your diet during these months when the sun's not out. Yeah, and just adding things like that to your diet, that'll get to the, I believe the the recommended amount is like 600 IUs. I don't know what that means, but I know that'll get us there. That's right, exactly. exactly. Cool. Okay, and so the uh, the the final thing, Heather, we had to go with the holiday theme here, and I really thought of you because I know your husband dressed up as a turkey <laughs> on Thanksgiving, but this past weekend, 5,025 race participants in Santa suits crossed the finish line at the Surf in Santa 5-miler in Virginia Beach, and that it, unofficially, that breaks the Guinness World Record for the largest Santa Claus run Ever. Well, first, I'm kind of surprised that this happened, you know, in a beach yeah, area. Exactly. I wouldn't have thought that. In hey, there, there were holiday lights on the Virginia Beach board, All right, so well, it did fit in. We'll allow there. it. But so wait, there's a record for this? Yeah, well, there's almost a record for everything. That's true. On Guinness. I actually had to call up Guinness just to confirm that this really was a record, and they sent me the information right away. So they broke the previous world record of 4,961 Santa. So it was a, it was a close margin. And that was set in 2013 in a race in Ireland. So wait, what exactly are these requirements? So there's actually a lot more detail. You could almost, I'm going to channel my inner Kit Fox here. You almost have to <laughs> make a list and check it twice. Oh, good one. Um, before you go into a record attempt like this. So everyone in the race who was going to dress up like Santa had to wear a five-piece Santa suit. So that is the hat, the beard, a red coat, red pants, and a black belt. So but they, not shoes. They could wear their own running okay, shoes. Okay, that's good. So that is good for the runners. There had to be people counting at the start and finish line, and they had to videotape everything. There were some people who didn't finish the race as they should as Santa. Probably that like beard. Yeah, d- disappointing a lot of children along the way. I don't know. But, yeah, <laughs> you, could, you could at least pull the beard down below your chin. It didn't have to be up around your mouth the entire time. So that helped with breathing a little bit. Was there a fastest Santa? Without Rudolph? There was. There was a fastest Santa. Nathaniel Bishop, he was third overall in 2838, and he was the first official Santa to cross the finish line. Um, The report that Monica got was that um, the person who finished first, he got jeered a little bit because he wasn't a Santa. (laughs) Good. (laughs) Yeah. You would think, everyone, come on, get on board, dress as Santa for this race. Um, And the other interesting items, um, the refreshment aid stations along the course. Gingerbread was out there, candy canes, and then... That's my kind of race. And then winter lager post-race and some uh, hard apple cider. So it really, they really hit the theme. So uh, runners will field trip next year, right? Next year, I think um, we can get on board with trying to break the world record with them. The other interesting thing is they provided the Santa costumes to all the runners. Wow. Yeah, I don't know what the cost of that would require, but that's a little bit more than probably a race shirt. Probably. And and more glory. So I'm going to channel my inner Kit Fox for a moment. And would you say that the Santa Clauses were running to town? Oh, they they ran to that finish line through Virginia Beach. So, yeah, a little bit. They were running through town. Awesome. Yeah, the last kick before Christmas and Hanukkah starts this weekend. So thanks for coming down and uh, celebrating with us Thanks for having me. That's it for this week's show. But before we go, just one last call out for your running date stories, as in your best or your worst on-the-run dating experiences. 
Sum up that workout in a brief note and email it to us at rwaudio at rodale.com. You could also message us on our Facebook page, Runner's World Audio, or tweet us the super short version at rwaudio. We're working on an episode about dating on the run, and we just might use your story. Also, a quick reminder to new listeners of this show to check out our other podcast called Human Race. It's the end of the year, so we're looking back, and we've decided to re-air our first two episodes of Human Race, which are also two of our favorites. This week, it's an amazing profile of runner and Holocaust survivor, Sylvia Wiener. I always wanted to live. I never believed I was going to survive, but I did. Okay, thanks as always for the ratings and reviews you guys have been sending in all year. I'm David Willey, Editor-in-Chief of Runner's World. This week's show was produced by Sylvia Ryerson, Christine Fennessy, Brian Dalek, and Mervyn Deganos. Be sure to join us next week for our final episode of 2016. Our panel of experts will spend the entire show answering your questions about running goals for 2017. So happy holidays, and we will see you next week.